On many occasions, we have uh, women read the scripture for us, uh, but we always do it on Easter Sunday. So thank you, Cindy, because women were the first heralds of the gospel. So we uh, honor that tradition uh, by having them read for us, especially on Easter Sundays. Uh, Most of you are familiar with the private detective Sherlock Holmes. You probably know that name. This uh, man who had sort of keen observation skills. And uh, with his sidekick, Dr. Watson, they were able to uh, solve many crimes that happened in and around London, England. Maybe you're a little less familiar with their camping trip. One day... Sherlock Holmes and Watson decided to go camping, and after a good meal and a bottle of wine, they laid down and slept. Several hours later, Sherlock woke up and elbowed his friend, Dr. Watson, who was lying next to him, and said, Watson, look up at the sky and tell me what you see. So Watson woke up and he said, I I see millions and millions of stars, and Sherlock said, What does that tell you, Dr. Watson? And after a minute or two of thinking, Dr. Watson replied, Well, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and perhaps billions of planets. Orologically, it tells me that it's approximately a quarter past three in the morning. Meteorologically, it tells me that we're probably going to have a nice day tomorrow morning. Theologically, it tells me that God is all-powerful and that we are small and insignificant. Why, Sherlock? What does it tell you? Sherlock responded, Watson, you idiot, someone has stolen our tent. (laughs) (laughs) So sometimes what happens when somebody's trying to explain something, they like to use big words. They don't seem to see what's most obvious. They try to explain it to you. Ever had somebody try to explain it to you and you think, they're telling me the most complicated way. Whether it's directions or how to open something or use something, you think there's got to be like a a simpler way. There's got to be smaller words. I don't know what you're talking about. So please use small words and try to be as direct and as straightforward as you can. Unlike what Dr. Watson was thinking about. The, the text we have us before us this morning on this Easter is the very first sermon ever delivered after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. So you might say this is the very first church sermon. And so uh, Peter is the one who's given the task to deliver this first sermon. He's uneducated and ordinary. We know that from uh, the, another part of Acts the, the, the smart people in the crowd had assessed Peter and said, well, he's just educated, ordinary fisherman. So think about that, a, an uneducated, ordinary fisherman. What, what just comes to your mind, the picture you have? Uneducated, ordinary fisherman. This is the person God chose to use to proclaim the very first message of the gospel to try to explain it, to say, hey, something's happening. Let me try to explain it to you. And so he chooses Peter. And I think one reason God chooses Peter is because Peter wasn't going to make the sermon complicated. 
I love what Peter says about the Apostle Paul in a later letter. He says, Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand. (laughs) See, Peter wasn't that way. He wasn't a hard-to-understand kind of guy because he was a very ordinary, uneducated fisherman. So when he's trying to explain things, he's trying to explain them in a very straightforward way. So I think one reason God chose Peter is because Peter's sermon here is not going to be complicated. It's not going to have a lot of big words He's not going to go around things to get somewhere. He's just going to go straight through. And the second reason I think God chose Peter is because Peter's going to make this very first sermon about God and not about himself. I think Peter had recently learned some very hard lessons about how much he valued himself recently. And so those lessons are now deeply embedded into Peter. He had he had promised a lot of things here recently he wasn't able to deliver on. So when he's going to stand up and talk in this first sermon, he's going to make sure he makes it about God and not about himself. And so when people leave this very first sermon, whether it's this first sermon in Acts chapter 2 or this sermon 2,000 years later, using this sermon as a text... When people leave, they're going to be thinking about God. They're not going to be thinking about Paul Phillips. They're not going to be thinking about Peter. They're going to be thinking about God. And so I want to take a look at this first sermon together. We're just reading through a sermon today for today's sermon. First of all, verse 22, people of Israel. Look what he says. Listen, pay attention. He's he's trying to get these people to lean in. There's thousands of pilgrims who have gathered in Jerusalem, and they're sort of milling around in some way. It's not like formal like this. It's more like a a giant uh, marble courtyard where people are having discussions, and he stands up in some form and says, okay, people, listen up. Pay attention, lean in, and I'm going to tell you what's happening. And I want you to pay attention because this is what God has to say about Jesus. And notice the very first thing he says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Isn't that interesting? I'm going to tell you about Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, who is a man. Many of you know him. Many, many of you know his family. He's a man. He, he lived in Nazareth. He was a carpenter. And Peter, through this whole text, he's going to build a case to say Jesus actually is more than a man. If you look down in verse 36, towards the very end, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, this man of Nazareth, he's not just a man. He's the Lord and Christ. So I I want you to see what Peter's doing. He's, He's, okay, pay attention to everybody. You've, you've seen this miraculous sign, of, miraculous sign of tongues. And I want you to be aware of what's happening here. And I'm going to make you aware of it by delivering this sermon. And the sermon's not going to be about me. It's going to be about what God has to say about Jesus. Now, I want us to start where everybody in here can start. We can start with we know Jesus. We know he was a man. He was from Nazareth, right? You probably know somebody here that knows him. And I'm going to tell you that Jesus is more than a man. He's actually the Lord, and he's the Christ, the Messiah. He's the anointed one. So how does Peter move his congregation from this point in verse 22 to Lord in Christ in verse 36? 
The answer is in verse 22. It says, people of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, is attested to, or he's accredited, or he's endorsed by God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move you from Jesus the man to Jesus the Christ by telling you that God has endorsed Jesus. That's what I'm going to do. That's how I'm moving people from one place to another. And I find this so fascinating that this very first sermon, after Peter has had all these incredible experiences, he's the one who walked on the water. All of all the disciples, he, he had that privilege. He's one of the three that got to see the transfiguration of Jesus. He saw all these miracles, and instead of standing up and saying, okay, I want to give you a personal testimony, which could have been very powerful. Instead of doing that, he says, no, I'd I'd like to stand up and give God's testimony. Rather than me telling you about Jesus, I'd actually like you to hear from God and what God has to say about Jesus. I want to make sure... You know, my endorsement doesn't really count here. God's endorsement is what counts. Now, no doubt a personal testimony has power about Jesus and changing a life, but, but God's endorsement is infinitely more valuable than Paul Phillips' endorsement. And so we're leaning in and we're going to listen to God's endorsement, and he, get, he gives his endorsement to Jesus in three ways. Let's look at them together. First endorse, endorsement, verse 22, God endorses Jesus through the mighty works, you see this, wonders and signs that God did through him. So we know that Jesus actually is the Lord in Christ because God used Jesus to perform many works, many wonders, many signs. In the Gospel of John, there are seven signs. Seven is a number of completion in the Bible, seven days of creation. Seven signs in the Gospel of John that give proof that Jesus is the Christ. The very first one is he turns water into wine. So the very first miracle that Jesus does is he he does a miracle in order to keep a party going. The very last miracle Jesus does is he raises Lazarus from the dead. And likely, and it said, you see it here in verse 22, he says, you know, you know these things yourself. I mean, where Lazarus lived was about two miles away from Jerusalem. So Lazarus probably in the crowd. I mean, wouldn't you love if you were giving this sermon to have Lazarus in your crowd? I mean, that would have been Awesome. Hey, any skeptics, can you just see Lazarus in the lobby afterwards? He'll be there and he'll tell you about how he came out of the tomb. That would have been awesome. I would have loved to have Lazarus at Christ Community Church. You know, so, so any skeptic just say, hey, the skeptic group, go see Lazarus afterwards. He'll give you some coffee and some information about death. So I would have loved that. So Lazarus here, lots of people know Lazarus. Lots of people were standing around at this graveyard when he came out of the tomb. So they know it. They've seen these signs and wonders. And John tells you the purpose of all these signs and wonders at the very end of his gospel. He says this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples. I've only given you seven. Seven that give you a picture of who Jesus is. But there were many more. And they're not recorded in these book, in this book, but they're written... Here's the purpose of the sign, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. 
there, I've written these things down so you would know them. You would see them and say, yes, he's the Christ. I see these things. I see this sign. I see God's endorsement. And it might be helpful just to point out the obvious here, as uh, Dr. Watson failed to do with Sherlock Holmes, is that when you see a sign, a sign points to something, right? I mean, that's the purpose of a sign. A sign is something that points to something else. When you come down I-40 from Raleigh, and you see a big billboard sign that might advertise Riceville Beach or the Blockade Runner, and you're 58 miles away or whatever it says. You ever see anybody stop and pull over and take a picture of the sign? Anybody say, honey, look at this sign. It's so awesome. Let's get a hotel and look at the sign every morning. No. They go 65, 75, maybe faster past that sign, right? They want to get to the thing the sign tells you about. What's spectacular is not this billboard. It's not the sign. It's the thing that points, it's pointing to. So as spectacular as these signs are in John, you don't camp out and look at the sign. The sign tells you about somebody, and it's pointing you to Jesus. So God endorses Jesus' first endorsement through many wonders, many works, many signs. It's God's way of saying, this Jesus, he's the real thing. When you have arrived here, you've gotten to the shore of the Atlantic. He's it. He's what you have come to see. Second endorsement, verse 23. This Jesus, so God is going to say something else now. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God This Jesus, you, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, quite a bit is actually written about this verse. And when you read about it, it actually sounds complicated. But I don't think Peter meant it to be complicated. I think he meant it to say, hey, when you look at the death of Jesus, there's two different viewpoints. I mean, this guy's an uneducated ordinary fisherman. Everybody in here probably has more formal education than Peter ever did. And he's just saying, hey, when you look at the death of Jesus, there's two different ways to look at it. Number one, you crucified and killed him. That landed like a hammer. You, you Jewish people, you lawless people, the Romans. So there's a mixture of religious and non-religious people in this crowd. All of you all who are sinners, you all are all responsible for putting Jesus to death. And whether you're religious or you're non-religious, no group wanted Jesus to be the king. The non-religious people are going to reject God totally. Religious people don't want, they they want people for, for God to endorse them. That's what religion is about. I do religious things so God endorses me. If I'm nice enough, if I go to church enough, if I give enough, if I do these things, then I get God's endorsement. And what we find out in the Bible is that God only endorses one person, Jesus. And religious people don't want just one person to be endorsed. They want to be endorsed. 
So whether you're religious or you're non-religious, both of them don't want this kind of God, so they put him to death. But then notice, main part here, God has a plan to put Jesus to death. I think just saying that feels a little unusual, does it not? I mean, you can't, you can't possibly miss it. God, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What happened on the cross wasn't just an execution. It was an execution of a plan. See, depending on how you look at the cross, it's, a, it's an execution. Some guy's coming in, and he's disturbing the peace, and we've got to get rid of him. That's a way to look at it. And Peter's saying, yep, that's a way, but there's another way. It's actually an execution of a a divinely designed plan. So Jesus wasn't just a victim of some kind of mob that came together 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. No, notice what he says. Jesus was delivered. Isn't that an interesting word? Jesus is actually delivered up according to this plan. Now, if you're members here at Christ Community Church, if this is a delivery of Jesus, when did this delivery begin? What's the answer? Even if you don't know, it's Genesis chapter 3 if you're at Christ Community Church. Right? In Genesis chapter 3, God wrote out like a delivery order. And at some point, we're going to deliver on a promise that somebody, some woman, is going to give birth to a son, and he uniquely is going to have the power to defeat death. And that delivery, it's been a long delivery system. And, and we've, get, we've gotten many of chances to see how God's preparing people to see Jesus uh, on the Monday Thursday service at the Passover supper, the, the, there's a perfect lamb that has to be sacrificed in order for people to have death pass over them. How does death pass over a person? Well, the blood of the lamb is over them. And if they're underneath the blood of this perfect lamb, death passes over. And see, you can just start writing the delivery system down all the way through the Old Testament. Then when you turn to Isaiah 53, you read this. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by him, his, by his wounds, we are healed. Who is Isaiah talking about? Hundreds of years, 800 years before Christ. He's talking about Jesus. See, this delivery system has been happening all the way through the Old Testament. It's fascinating. And we could pull out hundreds of more threads. But what, what Peter does is he knows the Old Testament, and he takes these threads, and he grabs hold of them, and he wraps all the Old Testament threads around Jesus. He's the real thing. He's what everything has been pointing to. He's, he's, he's what we've been thinking about, and he's part of God's plan. Part of that plan included an execution. Romans 4.25, Paul says it this way, Jesus was delivered over to death, delivered over to death for our sins. 
and was raised to life so we could receive God's approval. So Jesus was delivered to death so we could be delivered from death. If you want God's approval, you have to trust God's endorsement of Jesus. So you don't get an endorsement, you get an approval. It's different. God endorses Jesus, we accept Jesus, and we get God's approval. The big word for that is righteousness. We get God's righteousness. But I'm trying to stay away from Dr. Watson's stuff right now. So we just get God's approval. Now, now this third endorsement, 24 through 34, is Jesus' resurrection and ascension. So three endorsements. One is the miracles, the signs, the wonders. Secondly is the death of Jesus, which had been foretold from the beginning, really the beginning of time. And then third, this third endorsement is Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And look at verse 24. What, What a verse. God raised him up. He loosened the pangs of death. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's a powerful verse. That's a, that's a memory verse. I mean, death had never swallowed somebody that was holy. Think about that. Death opens its mouth and swallows the perfect person. Someone who has no guilt. And death couldn't hold him. And the word pangs here, Peter uses is a word, a word from a, that a woman would use in her final hours before giving birth. This is an appropriate word for people at Christ Community Church. The, the few hours before a woman gives birth, the, the pangs, are all, all these contractions are happening. It's like, I can't hold this child in anymore. And the grave is saying, I can't hold this perfect being in anymore. I've got I've to burst forth. Now, As a white guy who's 55, I just can't say it right. I can't say it with enough energy and enough enthusiasm because it's just not in my DNA. But I've listened to this African-American preacher. You may have heard him, and I'm going to send you a link to him. His name is S.M. Lockridge, and he man, he can say it right. He can say it right. Now, I'm going to really butcher what he says, so you'll forgive me when you listen to it when I send you the link. But he's trying to describe what's indescribable. And he has, a, he has several minutes of this, but here's a little piece of it. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't live, outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him, and Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. That's the best I can do for a 55-year-old white guy. That's not too good. I'm sure S.M. Lockridge wouldn't be too happy. But you see, he's trying to say, that's the king. And that's how you know for certain he's the king, is he burst out of the grave. Yes, it's wonderful that he did all these signs. It's incredible that he actually died on the cross. But there's no proof. There's no proof until you come out of the grave. I think I've used this probably several Easter sermons, but it's so helpful, just a simple illustration. And this happened to me yesterday. I'm in Walmart. 
Lots of people were in Walmart yesterday. And so I come out, and who do I get to greet as I'm coming through the door? Little old white-haired lady with little half glasses who has power. Because she's not going to let me go until what? She sees my receipt. I want to make sure what you got in the basket, Mr. Phillips, is paid for. And that's what the empty tomb is. It's a receipt. It's a great receipt. See, we could say, well, Jesus paid it all, but how do you know he actually defeated death? How do you know that that death is going to pass over you, that you're not actually just going to lay in a wooden box? How do you know? You have a receipt. You have this receipt that Jesus actually came forth from the grave, and he's the true king. And then what I find so, again, so fascinating here is Peter picks up on a couple of psalms, Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. Now, when you and I hear them, they they sound kind of bulky because you're not familiar with Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. And you think, well, Paul, this sounds complicated, but it's not complicated to the listener. It would be like if I started singing a radio song right now that everyone here would know. It would be whatever, the, whatever your channel that you listen to. You go, oh, as soon as you say that song, oh, I know that song. I know all the lyrics to Bruno Mars or whoever it is that you listen to. I don't listen to a lot of Bruno Mars, but whoever you listen to. You see, he's just saying, hey, you guys know these songs? They're in your head. They're on the radio. They're on the Jewish radio in Jerusalem. Everybody sings these songs. And he says, I'm, I'm an unschooled, uh, un- uneducated, ordinary man, and I listen to the radio, the same songs, and I'm just going to pick out some highlights from some songs that we all know. And he picks out these two highlights. And it's a song that's been sung for a thousand years. And guess who it's sung by? King David. Now, this is the whole reason I chose this passage for this Easter. Because we're right in the middle of looking at David. David, this this man who's going to be king, and we all know he's a shadow of the real king. And so Peter decides to go back to the Old Testament, and he picks on David and says, hey, these songs that David wrote, this is what he says in a couple of the verses, verse 27. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or death. You're not going to let your Holy One see corruption. Verse 34, you're going to say, the Lord is going to say to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now they all know this couldn't have been David singing about David. Why? Well, it says, verse 29, we can all go down and visit David's tomb right now. This is probably like a field trip for every class. Let's go look at David's tomb today. Everybody knows David is dead. But David is singing about another kind of king who's going to come. And that king, he's never going to see corruption. He's actually going to be called the Lord by the Lord. See that? The Lord said to my Lord, the Lord called Jesus the Lord, and he sits at his right hand. Now, who is this person? Who is the true king who is the man after God's own heart? Who is the one who cuts off the head of a giant enemy with a sword? 
Who is the one who wouldn't be abandoned to death? Who is the one who would be called Lord? Who is the one who sits at the right hand of God? Who is David talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Peter's first sermon. Peter's very first and great sermon is about God's endorsement of Jesus. Peter mentions twice that we're witnesses of these things, verse 22 and 32, but this uneducated fisherman's main point is not about what he's seen, but what God has done. Because you realize it doesn't matter what you believe. It matters what God says. You can say, I don't believe it, but that doesn't change change it. The truth is God has endorsed Jesus, and now he's asking you, would you believe? Verse 36, you can know for certain because of these endorsements that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. The test of whether somebody really knows God is whether they embrace God's endorsement of Jesus. And say, so if you're here this morning, you say you know God, but I don't trust God's endorsement of Jesus, then you don't know God. And when Peter finished his sermon, they were cut to the heart. You notice that? There's some internal witness that the people, some of the people standing there saying, what he's saying is true. It's true. And they say, what do we do? Now, do you think Peter would have made the answer complicated? No. (laughs) One word. Repent. You're going in the wrong direction. You need to hear, believe, and turn around and go in this direction. Towards Jesus. So maybe that's you this morning. You could be the religious person, but not know Jesus. You're doing the Christian religion thing, but you're doing it so God will eventually endorse you, and He's never going to endorse you that way. Well, I. Gave money and I came to church and I memorized John 3.16. That's not how you get into heaven. You trust in God's endorsement of Jesus. And when you do, here's the gospel. You get God's approval. That's the best news I could give you today. That you can get God's eternal approval. Despite everything that you've done, you can get it. By trusting God. In God's endorsement. Let's pray together. Lord, many of us here are, are uh, in Peter's camp. We have uh, seen the failures of trusting in ourselves. And we've given up on that. And although we're not perfect, we're falling forward towards Jesus.
And we are grateful to hear this story again today, this morning. We're so grateful that you have approved us, that you have given Jesus' righteousness, his rightness to us. And we can stand approved. We can have hope. We can have courage. But for the, the people here that are non-religious or religious, especially the religious, they're hoping that God, that you are going to endorse them. I pray that they would hear this sermon. They would be cut to the heart. They would ask themselves, what, what can they do? And today, Easter 2019, would be what they would write down in their journal is the day you turn them around. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.